I think that everything in the ocean uh, contributes to you know the diversity and interdependence of the ecosystems in the ocean. Uh, so are some things more important than others? Yeah, phytoplankton, zooplankton, far more important than anything else, really. We couldn't live on this planet without phytoplankton. Uh, but, and then of course there's a direct link, you know, whales are the, uh, and, and dolphins and seabirds provide the uh, nutrients for the survival of phytoplankton, the iron and the, and the uh, nitrogen that they need. And so the, everything's interconnected. If you remove the whales and you diminish phytoplankton populations, that's one of the reasons phytoplankton populations have been diminished since uh, by 40% since 1950 is because of the reduction of the, those species which provide the nutrient base for them. Welcome to Scanna, a podcast about oceans, ecoethics, and the environment for fans of fact-based reality and reality-based facts. I'm Mark Laren Young, and I've written several books about orcas, but my next book, due out this fall, is Sharks Forever, the mystery and history of the ocean's perfect predator. And I am so thrilled to share the news today that it features an introduction by this episode's guest, ocean warrior Captain Paul Watson. The founder of Sea Shepherd, one of the first Greenpeacers to risk his life for whales, and the inspiration for so much of the work I've been doing for whales. As always, Scanna exists because of the generous support of our Patreon patrons. So if you like what you're listening to and want to hear more interviews with people who are making waves around the world, please support us at patreon.com. Our patrons also get all sorts of cool perks, including sneak peeks at our upcoming documentary version of The Killer Whale Who Changed the World and Sharks Forever. In this episode, Paul Watson talks about his adventures in Canadian politics, fighting for salmon with another recent Scanna guest, Alexandra Morton, and how he shifted from fighting to save the whales to fighting for all marine life, including phytoplankton. We also talk about a poem I wrote about the Sea Shepherd that was illustrated with an original drawing of Opus the Penguin by Burke Breathed. So stay tuned till the end to hear that poem, Operation Desert Storm. And now, Captain Paul Watson. I had no idea you'd run for mayor of Vancouver. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, in 1995, I ran for mayor of Vancouver, but that was sort of funny because uh, I think 65 people ran that year for the for the position. I actually came in, I think I came in fourth. <laughs> but uh, I, I didn't run to, I didn't want to be mayor of Vancouver, but I uh, running gives you an excellent platform to say what you need to say. So that gave me access to all the media during that time as a candidate for the mayor. You know, I also ran for member of parliament twice and I also ran for the Vancouver Parks Board once. So again, I did it uh, primarily for the platform that it provided. When you ran for MP, did you run as an independent or did you, was there a party that backed you? I ran for the Green Party uh, for Vancouver Center and also for Vancouver Quadra. Cool. And how did that go for you? Like just in terms of the experience of, of that, like how seriously did you take it? And 
Well, when I ran for our Vancouver Quadro, it was 1986, and that was uh, just when we had sunk half of Ison's whaling fleet. And so the Green Party tried to kick me out of the party, which is really uh, quite amusing because they had a they had this meeting where they said that I was, you know, I couldn't run, and the election was actually underway. And I said, well, you, first of all, you can't kick me out of the party because you need consensus, and you certainly don't have that because I'm not going to support you. And that way, so that's one of the weak parts of your whole whole system here. But I said, what, what's the problem? He said, well, we can't condone violence. I said, well, there's nothing violence. We sank some ships, nobody hurt, let's go, going hurt. Well, you know, the, the, the destruction of property is violent. I said, what's the Green Party's position on abortion? You're pro-choice, right, so am I, fine. But you can't tell me that abortion is non-violent and sinking an inanimate object like a ship is violent. So this, this is a total a hypocritical position you're taking here. And so they, they, they they sort of backed down, but I just I just dropped out of the party after that because, you know, I just thought it was uh, they, they were nitpicking all, all of those things. The sea Shepherd's been incredibly nonviolent. We've never injured anybody in 42 years. I call it aggressive nonviolence, but it is nonviolent. That is amazing to me that you've been able to accomplish that because the nature of your actions, the care that you'd have to take. I, I interviewed somebody who's written the story of uh, who's written how you would really be Batman. And he said it would be so much more difficult to be Batman following Batman's rules and not being violent, or never killing anybody, right? And he said, that's the hardest part if you actually look at the science of Batman. And I thought, with what you do, it must be more difficult taking actions and ensuring that nobody's going to get hurt. How do you accomplish that? How do you get that across to everybody you're working with? Well, you just have to be extremely careful and cognizant of every move you make and from a strategic and tactical point of view. Uh, and uh, I think we've become pretty good at that. Uh, we've now, you know, just the very fact that we operate all of these ships for like 40 years without having anybody uh, seriously injured on board the, our own crews has been, you know, remarkable. But I think that it's because we, we pay close attention to to what we're doing and we do have training. And also, you know, one of the things people criticize us for is that most of our crew are volunteers. And, and the advantage of the volunteers is that the difference between that and professionals, professionals sometimes do things without even thinking about it, where the volunteers are far more uh, aware of the risks involved in what they're doing. That's really interesting because you'd think that with volunteers, you'd get people who were We'd let their enthusiasm get in the way of, of necessarily work in the mission. No, it's like uh, the problem with it with professionals is sometimes they just uh, take it for granted. It's like, you know, the story of the uh, of the parachute instructor who, after two thousand jumps, uh, jumped out of an airplane without his parachute because he was just so used to doing that he neglected to put it on. Wow, like uh, when. Uh, in Watson, there's a great scene of you arguing with uh, Jack Webster talking about oh, yeah. <laughs> how uh, you we were talking about how you you could have sunk four boats in Iceland and you only sunk two because you didn't want to take any chances with the security guards. Yeah. What, what people don't know about that is Jack Webster is one of our supporters. And uh, he, he was probably he's probably one of the best guys I've ever had to do interviews with. And I did a lot of interviews with him on, on air because uh, he knew how to make a performance about this whole thing. So I could get a lot of, you know, when people are really nice and everything, it's hard to get the information out. But if they challenge you, then that gives you uh, an in for getting your story across. And Jack was really, was really good at that. But he was actually one of our supporters. That doesn't surprise you. I think you told me once that he gave you money after interviewing you. 
Yeah, yeah, he's, he gave a donations, and uh, but he was really very enthusiastically a supporter. That's wild because he did such a good job of acting outraged by what you were doing. Well, actually, said to me one time, he said, "You know, I get a lot of politicians on here who are so full of it," and he says, "When I ask you a question, I get an answer." <laughs> Can you talk a bit about Sea Shepherd going from outlaw to law enforcement? Because I think that ride is fascinating. Well, we've always been uh, an anti-poaching organization. And so that's been consistent. You know, 12 years ago, I gave a lecture to the uh, FBI Academy in Quantico. And one of the FBI special agents said, uh, you know, Sea Shepherd's walking a pretty fine line when it comes to the law. And I said, yeah, well, it doesn't matter how fine the line is, as long as you don't cross the line. We don't cross the line. We haven't been convicted of any crimes. And uh, we uphold international conservation maritime law. That's what we do. So that's not a big stretch to move to that. And today now we have partnerships with dozens of governments in Africa and Latin America. What that means is we provide the volunteers and the resources and uh, they provide the authority. And uh, that's enabled us to stop poaching uh, in the waters off Africa and off Latin America and be very effective at it. I mean, just last month, we uh, arrested uh, six poaching vessels in the waters of Sierra Leone. Can you talk about the minister from Costa Rica, where you were charged, calling you up and saying, can you help us enforce things? Because I thought that was fascinating. Well, yeah, well, that whole story, you know, back in uh, nine, oh, was it, uh, 2001, uh, we came across near Cocos Island when we heard on the radio that there was a problem and there was an Ecuadorian longliner that was poaching sharks and the rangers there had no boats they couldn't do anything about it so we moved in and took it, took it upon ourselves to assist the rangers mm -hmm. and we were able to help them to arrest that boat and it became the first boat in under Costa Rican in the court, Costa Rican courts to be confiscated for illegal fishing and uh, so that we were quite popular in Costa Rica and uh, we we're going to work with them and then in 2002, on my way back to Costa Rica, uh, we encountered a Costa Rican longliner fishing illegally in Guatemalan waters. And the Guatemalan government asked us to stop it, which we did. And uh, nobody was hurt. But uh, when they, they got back to Costa Rica, they accused me of uh, trying to kill them. So I was, suddenly I was found myself charged with eight counts of attempted homicide. But I wasn't too concerned about it because we went into the courtrooms and Rob Stewart was on board making the film Sharkwater. And we used his footage, showed the footage, and uh, showed that, you know, nobody was trying to kill anybody. And the charges were dismissed and I was free to go. But a week later, they charged me again, this time with eight counts of uh, assault. And uh, again, we went into court and showed the film and, uh, and the charges were dismissed. And uh, I was given clearance to leave Costa Rica and I never thought anything about it for 10 years. And then in 2012, when I entered Germany, I was arrested on a, a Costa Rican extradition request for shipwreck endangerment for the same thing that happened back there and that they couldn't charge me for in 2002. So uh, here's, but in 2018, those charges were dismissed by the new government, which came in. And which shows you how it wasn't judicial, it was political. And the new minister of uh, the environment asked for our help. And uh, that year we went in and we removed 40 tons of marine debris and fishing gear off of uh, Cocos Island. And we've been uh, you know, working with Latin American countries ever since. We're now in partnership with Peru and Panama and Colombia and Mexico. Now, you just mentioned Rob and Sharkwater. Can you talk a little bit about the impact that both Rob and, and his movies have had on the world of shark. 
Well, I think that, you know, Rob certainly uh, did a revolutionary film with the, the production of Sharkwater. He joined us back in 2002 uh, to begin the filming on that and shot a lot of it from our boats. Uh, but the, but he, he, he approached it from a completely different view. See, one of the things that Rob Stewart and uh, Ali Tabrizi and so many others, the secret to making a good documentary film is to make it their story. And because uh, people can relate to people's stories and then you get your message across in that story. So Sharkwater was really Rob Stewart's story and he did a brilliant job of putting it uh, together and getting that message across. And I think it had a, an impact internationally and certainly it was a benefit to sharks uh, all over, all around the world. I've been working on sharks lately and it, it is easy now to explain to people why they should care about whales. It is hard to explain to people why they should care about sharks. Can you talk a little bit about why sharks matter and why sh why sharks are so vital to us. I have to say, though, it's easier to convince people to protect sharks than to protect fish. <laughs> fish are a hard sell. But uh, sharks, uh, you know, there's something uh, mysterious about sharks. It's sort of like, like T-Rexes, really. There's something very uh, uh, enticing about these big so-called monsters and everything, which are not really monsters at all. They're just natural animals in their natural environment. But uh, I think that people are very much aware of sharks, a lot thanks to Rob Stewart and so many others who have worked on the shark issues. And uh, so sharks are no longer in that category of people don't really care about them anymore. And now actually we have a, my octopus teacher, so people are beginning to care about octopuses. So, you know, it just shows you the power of film, the power that documentaries have to influence people. My octopus teacher was just fascinating. Any thoughts on that one? Well, yeah, I, uh, I'm glad to have won the Academy Award. I think it certainly uh, d deserved it. And again, it's another uh, uh, example of a story, uh, a person's story that's used to convey a message. And it, it was done brilliantly. Now, we've talked before, and I've heard you talk to other people about the importance of films. And, you know, I just saw you write about it again on your Facebook page, the where you said it's no longer the pen and the sword, it's now the picture and the sword. Can you talk a little bit about movies as mind bombs. Yeah, that, in fact, uh, was Robert Hunter who coined that phrase years ago called uh, dropping mind bombs, which today is means going viral, but putting images in people's heads uh, and understanding the nature of media. You know, Marshall McLuhan wants to broke down media into different categories, uh, hot media, cold media, film and television's hot media, print is cold media. And when you uh, talk about a hot issue like war on a hot medium, that is emotionally very enthralling. It gets people involved. So film uh, has the ability to get pe to capture people, to get into their heads, uh, to capture their imagination and put themselves in the place of the filmmaker. And uh, so therefore it's, it's that powerful. I've always said that the camera is the most powerful weapon that's ever been invented. It, it does, it changes things. It can change society. And in fact, one of the most brilliant uses of the camera was a 15-year-old teenage girl in uh, Minneapolis last year when she captured the, uh, the George Floyd uh, murder. Can you talk a little bit um, about your work with Alexandra Morton? Because I just interviewed her about her new book. And of course, your work with her, like get, getting the call out of the blue saying, hi, we're going to send you a ship, she said, was pretty amazing for her. Well, it wasn't that it came out of the blue. I, I, I contacted her and I said, what can we do to help you? 
And uh, yeah. then I said, well, you know, if we send a boat up there to assist you, you could use it. And she said, yes. So that's, so what, this was really Alexandra's project. And uh, we also were partnering with the First Nations that were involved there. So we were there really to facilitate what she was, she was doing. So we called it Operation Virus Hunter. And uh, I think it was quite successful. I think we shut down 17 fish farms in the Broughton Inlet and that. And uh, I, I think it gave her a boost to do what she's doing. And uh, she's been extremely persistent <laughs> and, uh, in what she's doing. And I think that's paying off. Now, you're just, I was shocked to find that you'd actually taken a class from Marshall McLuhan. No, I didn't take a class. Or he was a guest lecturer? Yeah, I was, a, a, I was a student of Simon Fraser in communications, and he was a guest lecturer, yes. Very cool. And you, the, the four types of, uh, the four elements to getting media attention, did that come from SFU, from him, or from you? And can you talk about what those are? Well, it came from me, but probably certainly influenced by, by him. You know, I don't think he would have said that, but uh, the four elements of media being sex, scandal, violence, and celebrity. So I think that everything in the ocean uh, it contributes to, you know, the diversity and interdependence of the ecosystems in the ocean. Uh, so are some things more important than others? Yeah, phytoplankton, zooplankton, far more important than anything else, really. We couldn't live on this planet without phytoplankton. Uh, but, and then, of course, there's a direct link. You know, whales are the, uh, and, and dolphins and seabirds provide the uh, nutrients for the survival of phytoplankton, the iron and the, and the, uh, nitrogen that they need. And so the, everything's interconnected. If you remove the whales and you diminish phytoplankton populations, that's one of the reasons phytoplankton populations have been diminished since uh, by 40% since 1950. What's the most amazing thing you've seen in the ocean? Oof, again, there's so many things it's hard to say. Uh, I can't really put, you know, uh, I can't really put my finger on the most amazing thing that I've seen. I think the most spectacular places that I've seen uh, are uh, Antarctica. And, uh, you know, there where you can walk with the uh, sea leopards and, and, and walk amongst the penguins and sea orcas everywhere and whales are all over the place. And the great magical thing about it is there's no human beings around. It's a world without humanity. And, uh, and therefore, it's very clean. It's very, uh, it's very untouched. I mean, what other place in the world can you walk up to wild animals like, uh, like penguins and uh, they're not afraid of you? That sounds amazing. Um... What are some of your biggest successes? What sort of stands out for you as, uh, in terms of campaigns that have worked or moments that have worked? Well, after years of campaigns, we drove the Japanese whaling fleet out of the Southern Ocean Whale uh, Sanctuary. And in the process, saved the lives of 6,500 plus whales. Uh, you know, we've arrested, what, 56, and seized 66 uh, poaching vessels in the waters of Africa over the last few years. And I'm quite confident that if it wasn't for our involvement in uh, the Bikita Refuge in Mexico, the Bikita Porpoise would now be extinct. We've uh, confiscated about 150,000 meters of illegal uh, gill nets that, that were set. So I think those are three of, the, of, the, of our best accomplishments. Also the fact that after years of, of campaigning, we were able to undermine the market for seal pelts in Europe, which uh, pretty much was a collapse of, this, of the Canadian seal hunt. Uh, where you know they only take about ten percent of their quota now, and the only reason that happens is because of subsidies from the Canadian government. Can you please explain the, the situation with the vaquitas? Because it's 
it's so unbelievable to me what's going on out there and why. And I'd rather it would be great to have you explain what's happening. Well, the Mexican uh, the Mexican fishermen they're not after the vaquita. They're they're after a fish called the totoaba, which is also an endangered species, but it's about the same size as a vaquita. So therefore, the nets that they put down to catch the totoaba often uh, ensnare the uh, vaquita porpoise. The totoaba, they don't catch it to eat. Uh, the totoaba fish is only caught for one reason, it's swim bladder, which is ripped out, dried, and sent to China and fetches about $20,000 a kilo in the Chinese market. So that's a, a powerful uh, motivation for poaching. So to, taking the totoaba is illegal, and uh, but that doesn't deter them. The whole thing's run by a, a cartel, the same cartel that deals with drugs in the, that area of Mexico. And this is one of the reasons why it's our most violent campaign. I mean, they poachers attack us with Molotov cocktails. They shoot our drones down. They shoot at us. Uh, but uh, so far, we've held fast, and the vaquita has not gone extinct and hopefully we'll keep that keep up with that but the mexican government's under enormous pressure uh from the, the fishing industry there to uh you know to just let it go extinct so that they can get on with uh, doing what they're doing how many vaquita are there i think it's like two dozen or something well, 17 to 22 in that in that range that's just mind-boggling um how few there are and it, so there are more of you out there trying to save the vaquita than there are vaquitas at this point. That's true, yeah. I mean, the population has declined from the, the thousands uh, in the uh, 80s to the, you know, to the hundreds in uh, the last, uh, since since the new century to down to 17 to 20. It's, 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 it's declined extremely uh, rapidly. Wow. Um, so I pulled this off my wall to show you because I thought you'll never oh yeah i remember you getting me this when i wrote the poem about the sea shepherd pie cannon yeah and you said what would i what could i you know did i want to get paid i'm like absolutely not but if you could get me the berkeley braided image of uh opus throwing the throwing the pie that would be fantastic you got to send me a copy of that poem again i will absolutely do that but yeah that's that's like I've got two pieces that have followed me around and been on my wall everywhere I've ever lived. And this is 111. I sort of saw that this morning. I thought, I'm going to take that off the wall and show it to you. Uh, what are the campaigns that are happening now that people should know about? Well, we're patrolling the West Coast of Africa to stop poachers. Uh, we're also trying to stop the killing of 10,000 dolphins a year in the Bay of Biscay. Uh, we're patrolling in the Mediterranean to seize uh, fish aggregating devices that are set illegally and to stop poaching uh, there. And we have the campaigns, of course, uh, to protect the vaquita in Mexico. We're also opposing the Chinese fishing operations in the Eastern Tropical Pacific. So we're operating the Ocean Warrior out of Peru. And we're working with Colombia to protect uh, Mopello National Park Marine Reserve, with Ecuador to protect the Galapagos Park Marine Reserve, and with Panama to protect the Koi Island Marine Reserve. Wow, and how many ships do you have now? Because I know you just you just launched a new one. Yeah, there's 11 ships now. The latest one is the Sea Eagle, which is now in the Mediterranean. So how, and you know, you talk about the Sea Shepherd Navy. How Where does the Sea Shepherd Navy fit the world's navies now? Well, actually, we have more ships than many of the countries that we work with. <laughs> in fact, I think we have, we have more ships than Ireland does. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And I thought it would be fun to talk a little bit about your poetry. How has that happened? 
Well, I've always written poetry. But what do you... I think you've just really started sharing it because I'm aware of you doing a couple books. Well, I've done a couple books. My last book was Cetacean Nation, which was uh, 120 uh, verses on whales, whaling, and saving whales. Fantastic. Any advice for people in terms of what they can do to help the oceans? Everybody can do something, and uh, it really depends on what your skills and your abilities and how passionate you are. So uh, I've always said that the strength of an ecosystem lies in diversity. Therefore, the strength of any uh, movement has to lie in diversity. So whether that approach is litigation, legislation, direct action, or, you know, uh, education, it's all, it all points, it all contributes towards the same objective. And so we all just do our part. Fantastic. I think we're covered here. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, great. Thanks. And you know, great to see you again. And thanks for doing all that you do. Do you still have a recording of that song? I absolutely do. So I will, I'll end off the podcast with it and I'll make sure I send it to you as well. Oh, okay. Because I had it and one of my crew members uh, borrowed it and never saw it again. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I'll make sure that gets out to you. Okay. Thanks. Very cool. Thank you so much. Bye. Have a great day. Thanks again for checking out Scanna. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss upcoming interviews with Fran Stawall, author of Mama's Last Hug, Seattle Times epic orca reporter Linda Mapes, the director of The Loneliest Whale, the story of Blue 52, and the director of Last of the Right Whales. If you want to help us share more stories about oceans, ethics, and the environment more often, please join our pod at patreon.com. I'd like to thank all our Patreon patrons, including Susie Venuta, Robert Anderson, Simon McNair, Nancy Campbell, Darren Learn Young, Philip Ashdown, John Lowe, Rebecca Jenkins, Solon Siegel, and Yosef Wask. Scan is also brought to you by Orca Publishing, publishers of my three books about whales and two books about sharks for younger readers. And of course, our friends at Eagle Wing. Be sure to check out our show notes at scanna.org and subscribe to our Scanna magazine on Medium, which features excerpts from Paul Watson's new book, Orcapedia, and an excerpt from my book, Orcas Everywhere, that explains that yes, orcas are whales. Follow us on social media and share the show with your friends. Heck, share our episodes with everyone. Reviews on your favorite podcast provider are always appreciated. If this podcast didn't work for you, I'm Conan O'Brien, and this is Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. This podcast is produced in Saanich, BC, traditional territories of the Wasanich, Songhees, and Esquimalt peoples. Scan is produced by the always awesome Rainbow. Audio engineering by Rainbow and Isabella Almashi. The Scanna site and much more are courtesy of our Wizard of Web, Katie Brown. Scanna's theme, Scanna, is by Leah Abramson. And now, Operation Desert Storm. I've been fascinated with orcas pretty much forever. Yeah. And the guy who turned me on to whales is a guy named Paul Watson. Was interviewing Paul Watson, became a huge fan of the Sea Shepherd. And one of the things that I love about the Sea Shepherd is they've got such a phenomenal sense of humor. I don't know if you know this, but the Sea Shepherd runs the Jolly Roger on their boats. The pirate freaking flag. But they're vegan eco-pirates, right? So what are vegan eco-pirates going to do for weapons? 
I don't know if any of you know this, but they came up with an answer. They've got a cannon on the Sea Shepherd boat, the whales forever, and it fires pie filling. So I wrote this about um, the Sea Shepherd, Whales River, pie filling. This is called Operation Desert Storm. <laughs> if you want to give me something like a sea shanty, go for it. The ship Whales Forever set sail to Norway to stop the whalers and their harpoons. And they'd set up a brand new weapon to challenge their foes at high noon. Yes, their ship was equipped with a cannon, but that cannon packed quite a surprise. Because instead of shooting out cannonballs, it fired banana cream pies. One Sunday they spotted a whaler. He was hollering to throw out the net. And the captain yelled, fire! And the whaler was hit with a shot he would never forget. Yes, his face was covered with custard and a layer of bananas and cream. And the whalers yelled foul and Norwegian sailors scowled as the whale swam away down the stream. The next day the news hit the papers and soon it was on CNN. This new weapon was surely a danger and should never be unleashed again. The United Nations was outraged. This new weapon had to be stopped. Attacking whalers with pies was improper, even if there were cherries on top. Then the scientists met with the bakers and soon the menace had spread. Countries had stopped making missiles and were whipping up pie crusts instead. A Pentagon meeting confirmed it. The pie race had got out of hand. The Koreans were fiddling with fillings. The Arabs had pies made of sand. Japanese pies were smaller and faster. Russian pies could get by radar unseen. And satellite photos seemed to confirm the Italians were using ice cream. The Germans had layers of dark chocolate. The French had perfected meringue. And those tricky Australians went and invented a triple-layer banana boomerang. <laughs> so the president called for a total ban on all unlicensed pies. And protesters marched in Washington, waving their protest signs. You'll pry this pie from my cold, dead hands. And the crowd continued their cries. When all cream pies are outlawed, only outlaws will have cream pies. But whales forever kept up their patrols, guarding the whales in the seas, attacking Norwegians with fresh banana cream, aiming fudge at the Japanese. The whalers the whalers complained that these attacks were cruel and impossibly tricky because each time they tried to shoot a new whale, they found that their faces were sticky. Then the whalers stole the pie cannon in a move so incredibly yellow. Whales forever launched their ultimate weapon, a missile filled with raspberry jello. And now the whales are safe at last. Their extinction has been averted because all of the whalers on the world's high seas have been covered with pie and deserted.